Welcome to Turn of the Century, a podcast about the turn of the 20th century. I'm Joseph Hawthorne. The Balanhiga Massacre, incident, battle, whatever you want to call it, was a shocking twist in a war that seemed to be winding down. On this episode, novelist Jennifer Halleck shares her research on Balanhiga and her experience teaching Philippines history in a U.S. classroom. On today's episode, we're going to use very specific events from a short battle to understand the aftermath of a much wider conflict. Thank you so much, Jen, uh, for joining us today. We're going to talk about um, your research writing the historical novels of the, Sh- the Sugar Sun series. I got to get all my S's in um, about the turn of the 20th century and the Philippine-American War. Uh, really excited to have you. And so can you just jump in a little bit to what exact events um, your books cover, a little context about Balanghiga, Thomasites, um, what do you get into in your books? Yeah, so my my books are set um, really from the years 1901 to 1905. And uh, I have, I'm going to do it maybe more by character than even events, because in some ways, my characters represent, you know, different aspects of American rule. So I have uh, one American school teacher, and she represents the Thomasites, who were the American uh, teachers who came in August of 1901 to set up a public school system. Um, I have uh, her love interest, who is a Filipino sugar baron in Bais, in, in uh, Negros Island. Um, and he re- he really represents to me the attempt to keep business going in the midst of war, drought, locusts, epidemics. Um, he's he's really a, a sort of a struggling small business owner, if if you think of it in, in that way. And he he's also a nationalist um, who falls in love with an American. That's a tough one. Um, I also have a a, a soldier, a former soldier, um, struggling with post-traumatic stress. He is a survivor of the Balaniga uh, ambush or attack in southern Samar. Um, he will ultimately work on uh, the hacienda for his future brother-in-law. And I have another Filipina school teacher. She will, um, she sees opportunity in the switch from Spanish to American administration. Um, And she's smarter than everyone, so um, she can make it for herself. Um, I also have... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Okay, so I was just um, going to to jump in. Um, Since we connected initially um, about Balanghiga, if you can give a little bit more context for what that event was, uh, why it matters. Yeah, that was, um, I think, a really important event, both for the war at the time for both sides. It was, at the time, the Americans believed a massacre. Uh, The town of Balaniga had risen up against uh, the American garrison that had been stationed there by for about two months by that point. Um, and it was the biggest defeat of the U.S. Army since Little Bighorn. Uh, of the 72 Americans in that garrison, uh, 48 are killed. And 
from the American point of view, it was clearly a massacre. Their their soldiers were innocent and, um, you know, peaceably stationed in the town. And the Americans used that as a, a justification for uh, a ramping up of a very harsh regime of the island of Samar. I think from the Filipino perspective, um, the American garrison there had not been as peaceful as that, as all that. And they, in fact, had, were creating a, they, 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 their liberation. Uh, this was for them a, uh, rebellion, a righteous uprising against forced labor and forced imprisonment. Essentially, the Americans had, had moved into the, the couple weeks before the incident, before the attack, had moved into creating a labor camp. Um, out of all the men of the town. And, you know, it was really a, a town, uh, a, a town led attack, a town staffed attack. It was basically men of the region. The Americans saw it as a, a just one action within the larger overall war, and they treated it as such. Uh, I think that the recent scholarship of Rolando Borinaga and Bob Kuti have shown that, in fact, this was a very spontaneous response to a very difficult situation that the town had been in. But for everyone after used Balaniga as the justification, it was it was the justification for everything the Americans did afterwards. And then can you talk a little bit about what happened afterwards? Um, it's that's almost as important, uh, maybe more important um, for the larger history, um, what let's think about that. What was the after effect of the Balanghiga incident? So almost immediately, uh, the Americans steamed right over to the town and uh, burned it down, attacked, uh, and that just began sort of the larger counteroffensive over. Most of the whole island, um, General Hughes claimed that he wanted his soldiers to make a desert out of that island. And General Jacob, quote, hell-roaring, end quote, Smith said that he wished for the men to kill and burn. And the more they killed and burned, the more they would please him. And when asked, you know, what the age of engagement was, he said 10 years old. So, you know, you have this, this idea that every male 10 and above would be potentially uh, a, a, a fighter. Um, and, and I don't think we, you know, that, that, that goes against General Orders 100. That, that absolutely is, is not what military practice was meant to be. Um, but I think the most out of control that Americans got in the Philippines was really on that island and neighboring Leyte. Well, and I should say in and and the southern islands, um, you know that maybe up until <laughs> up until 1902. Then you have a whole nother war that the Americans have to fight um, in Mindanao, in Holo, and Basilan. And you also teach, I think, mostly high school. Um, just high school, um, you know, and you have lessons, um, classes about 
the Philippines, about Philippine American history, the Philippine American War. What kind of conversations you have with New England students, <laughs> with American students? Well, you know, I, I actually, t- I, since I teach at a boarding school, I do have international students. I have students from everywhere, but I would say the majority of them are American high, uh, high schoolers, mostly seniors. And I have no idea what incur, you know, what propels them to take my course. It's an elective course. Um, and I think it's the only one at the high school level in the country that's an entire trimester devoted to American empire in the Philippines specifically. Um, it's, I think, one of a few, very few courses even at the college level devoted to American empire in the Philippines. And I find that just honestly flabbergasting. It's just unbelievable how little Americans understand about their former colony. And, and that's actually one of the things that the students find so fascinating. Um, they just, they don't understand why they don't learn about it more, why they haven't heard more about it, how much um, the Americans really impacted the Philippines and vice versa, how much, you know, occupying the Philippines impacted America, um, the relationship between those two countries, that it was in fact a colony for so long, 48 years, um, that it was uh, such a significant base of American foreign policy in the Pacific. Um, You know, one of the things I always say is that if you look at all the issues we talk about now from, you know, globalization and uh, trade, uh, economic uh, liberalization, or if we talk about, um, you know, military policy, uh, torture, right? All of these were issues even then, and they really began then in the Philippine-American War. It was 1902 when the Senate was essentially shut down for any other issues uh, with the Lodge Committee on the Philippines trying to find out to what extent the Americans were guilty of uh, what they called uh, marked severities, which is essentially torture. And and it, it was, you know, the Philippine-American War and, and occupation of the Philippines and whether the United States should even have an overseas empire was the key issue of the 1900 election. And so I, I think that it's really interesting that we just have forgotten about this and we sort of push it aside, even though it's so much it's so relevant to everything we do right now. And if anything, I would say it's more relevant now. My students typically, as we move along in the course, um, I have another elective on Vietnam and then another elective, I call it American Iraq, but it's really American the Middle East. And by the time several students who have chosen to take all three um, get to the end, they just, they sort of have their heads on their desk saying, why, why don't Americans learn from the past? Um, but they also say it's amazing to them how little uh, Americans are told today about the extent of American empire. And I know that that's a big focus for Stephen Kinzer, um, also uh, Daniel Immervar, who wrote How to Hide an Empire. You know, it's a big focus that we've made our empire invisible, partly by giving up the big portions of land like the Philippines and keeping the small islands like Guam, right? And and by doing that, we've created this pointillist empire. But I think it 
it makes it so that we can pretend that we're a republic um, when in fact we're an empire and we still are. And that's, I think that was the reason why I began, I mean, I was living in the Philippines too, but that, that was really the reason I began wanting to write, uh, historical fiction, romantic, you know, historical romance, really genre fiction set there was my initial aim was to bring that setting to the American public so that people would read interesting stories about love and, you know, conflict, but, you know, reading, learn about their own history in a way that was uh, very low impact, shall we say. Um, (laughs) And so that, that was my aim. Um, Interestingly enough, I I found more of an audience in the Philippines uh, than in the United States. And I think, again, I think that's because to a Filipino, yeah, the American period, we know about that or we at least know something about that. Um, whereas if you say to an American, what about the Philippine period? You know, what about the American period in the Philippines? Americans will say, where are the Philippines? Which, yeah, by the way, it, is also what McKinley said. Um, right, that's what I was going to say, is, is like literally what the President of the United States said 120 <laughs> years ago now, a century, more than a century ago. Um, and I mean, you answered, because I was going to start asking um, <laughs> about what originally made you interested in this time period. Um, but also, I'm curious what parallels um, your students or you draw when you're talking about, like, I guess the big three, right? The, the Philippine War, Vietnam, and War on Terror, uh, more generally. Like, are, are there specific events, parallels that, like, come up a lot? Well, we were talking about Balniga and and you had mentioned, for example, that, you know, that experience from the American point of view, it was very much a, a raw wound for the American army. It was their largest defeat since Little Bighorn. But, but I think what, if we, if we then advance the time, just even a month, the American military launched a counterattack to make an island, uh, a desert out of that island of Samar. And, and so the American counterattack was so brutal and 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 so extreme you know we we've i'm sure you've talked about uh general jacob hellroaring smith who said to his uh uh the officers underneath him i I wish i want you to kill and burn the more you kill and burn the more you will please me and his officers asked him uh, what was the age of engagement? At what age would a male Filipino be considered a potential threat? And he said 10, right? So basically he was saying, kill every male above the age of 10. Now, fortunately, most of his officers had a better head on their shoulders than that. But, you know, the the most of the deaths in Samar came from the burning. It came from just burning down village after village rice field after rice field, slaughtering carabao, which, you know, were were not just animals, they're not just family pets, they're tractors, right? They're they're the 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 pro- the main piece of property that any Filipino farming family would be lucky to have if they if they still had one. There had been a rinderpest epidemic, um, which is like measles for carabao. And so 90% of them had already been killed. You have just this this island that is that is absolutely put to the torch and i that 
is something that my students find consistent. When we when we then study My Lai in Vietnam, when you have entire areas that become free fire zones, um, and which by the way was you know even a policy in Batangas under General Bell, right? You create these uh, protected zones, as they were called. You push all the civilians into these few camps, and then and then the areas outside the quote-unquote deadline are free fire zones. And that, you know, that that concept, I mean, it worked for Bell, but it if you think about it, when when American civilians are told that that was the policy, uh, people are surprised. It was the very policy that we went to war with Spain to prevent. It was the recon- reconcentrados that the Spanish were using in Cuba that gave the justification for liberating, quote unquote, liberating the Cubans from Spanish tyranny. And then just two years later, the Americans are using those exact strategies. So basically called the reconcentration camps, reconcentration camps. Yes. So it, you know, we see, we see that when, when you look at Fallujah, when you look at, um, honestly, even the use of drones, um, the, the idea that, um, that we're really putting a lot of hope in the fact that we are, when we shoot, we're able to discriminate between friend and foe. In the Philippines, it was, you know, insurrecto versus amigo, sort of amigo by day, insurrecto by night. Um, How do you deal with a fighting force you might not be able to see how do you deal with the civilians who are caught in between you and that fighting force? Um, how do you how do you make friends in a situation like that? And you know, what's also interesting is that in some ways the Americans were more successful in the Philippines than they ever would be again, um, and and that may be because there was this other part of the American policy that I think is probably worth mentioning, is the attraction. So, you know, if, if the fighting, if the military policy was the chastisement, as it was known, then the attraction was things like building bridges, ports, um, sanitation efforts, uh, providing medical care, free dispensaries, and um, what I write about, teachers. So, you know, in 1901, a thousand American school teachers arrived in the Philippines to set up a public coeducational secular school system. And so that is a good transition. Um, I mean, everything that we talk about is a good transition for multiple things, but that is a good transition because you write and you teach. Is that what originally got you interested in this topic? What what was it that um, made you interested? Absolutely. I was, I was, you know, living in the Philippines. I was teaching in international school, teaching history. Um, and I uh, was also writing at that time. And, uh, you know, I was writing contemporary romance. Uh, and you know, my husband said, you know, that's just crazy. You're a history teacher in a place of rich, shared American and Philippine history. Um, you know, you should write a, a novel about, you know, a, a, a Thomasite, which is the, the term, the slang term for these American teachers, because they arrived on the transport named Thomas. So everyone called them Thomasites. You should write about a Thomasite who falls in love with a Filipino sugar baron. You know, that's, is that Jane Austen enough for you? And he's sort of doing it as a dare. Um, I was like, 
I take that dare. Um, and it was, you know, it was hard at first, but I was also living in a place where I had more access to information on this period than anywhere else. Um, and so I was able to drive across town to the Ateneo de Manila um, library. They have the American Heritage Collection. Um, and so, you know, put me in a room with microfiche and, you know, if I have a sandwich and microfiche, like that's the day. Um, and so I would just read through the Manila Times and and read about, you know, what was happening with all these teachers. And uh, that was the the inspiration for my first novel. Awesome. Yeah. And so and then um, and it kept going and, uh, you know, you, you rolled with it. Um, and so thinking about that research, like, can you just talk a little bit more about mm -hmm. what you found um if, you know, I, I guess for lack of a better word, like if you found things you never, you know, seen in like history books or textbooks, but like what kind of, um, you know, you new things you unearth? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Um, one of the things I found was how much uh, how much conversation was going on within the American community about what their policies should be. I think it's important to remember that that this was sort of a new adventure for a lot of Americans. This was not they didn't have a history of, you know, Richard Kipling's, you know, a uh, uh, school of imperialism 101. Like they hadn't taken that course and so they were trying to figure out how to do this and and yet also how to do it better because throughout all of this you see a strain of the american exceptionalism idea right that that it was america's history and and legal system and transparent democracy that made them better suited to bring uh you know, governance to the Philippines than any European power. The United States wanted to do things better than the European um, and differently. And so there was there was a lot of uh, discussion and pretty, I think, open debate in some of the English language newspapers about issues such as, should we be teaching these children in English? And and I think that's a really good question. I think it's one of the, the main criticisms of the the system that they built was that it unlike what the spanish had done before them the spanish had intended to create a public school system they they sort of fell short of their own vision for it um it ended up being left primarily for the church to do and they had a lot of, they had a lot of time too. <laughs> they did have a lot of time. But you have to remember the the weird thing, the interesting thing about the Spanish in the Philippines, I think two things that people often forget about their empire there is that number one, the Philippines was a colony of a colony. It was a colony of Mexico um until 1820. And so all Philippine policy came out of Mexico. That's number one. So it really had sort of a lower status than a lot of other places the Spanish ruled. And then second, really outside Manila, the people running all Spanish policy were the friars, right? So it was it was all the priests. Um, there really wasn't sort of a Spanish governance system um, other than, you know, the church. So it was, again, left to the church to do, which I think meant it was done better in some places and worse in others. Um and they didn't, though they did teach some Spanish and the elites spoke Spanish fluently and, and went to Spain for school, um, they, 
you know, the average everyday person didn't necessarily learn Spanish. So that's probably why so many people did appreciate what the Americans were doing, ironically, even though it may not be appreciated now, which for reasons I completely understand, um, it was, I mean, it is assimilation, it is cultural imperialism. Um, but at the time, what it was allowing was for children of peasants, particularly female children of peasants, to be, you know, taught in the language that then they could use at universities, both in the islands and in the United States. And so there was a social mobility aspect of it that really appealed to some people. Um, and so they did, they, they actually did, it seem, seems, want to have their children learn English um, because they could get a job that, and maybe it doesn't sound like much these days, but, you know, they could be a clerk for, you know, one of these government offices. It doesn't seem like much, but if your parents are, you know, doing daily backbreaking labor in the fields and, may, and not getting paid well for it, and then their children have this opportunity to work indoors, shaded from the sun, and, and have a regular salary and status, uh, that meant a lot. So what I find very interesting is the Americans did debate whether they should be teaching in Spanish or whether they should even be learning the local languages and teaching them those. And in the end, they, this may not surprise you, took the easy way out. <laughs> um, the Americans decided, hey, we speak English. And they had a lot of justifications. It's going to be the commercial language of Asia, let alone the world, and, and it will give people a lot of opportunities. But they just said, we'll just do it in English. Yeah, I mean, and it's a it's a mixed blessing. Um you know, for like a lot of reasons you mentioned, um, but it does, there are, there were definitely benefits at the time. Um, and, and so, you know, speaking of more broadly about your research too, um, maybe I got this wrong and we can delete this if not, but um, did you also go to Balinhiga or try and recreate, recreate the, the scene there? I didn't do any, any battle uh, recreation, um, reenactment. Um, but I did go, I dragged okay. my husband there. Um, and it, you know, I thought, you know, December would be a great time to visit because December where we lived South of Manila is this perfect time in terms of, you know, 70 degree days, bright, cool, sunny, um, just lovely. And so we decided, you know, I said, Hey, let's go down the summer. And, um, not this is a complete foreigner move. Um, not realizing that the rainy season is different in different islands. I mean, I think a lot of people don't realize how you know the Philippines it stretches from an area from that goes from essentially you know Vancouver to San Diego. It's 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 really long, and so yeah, they're all all the islands have different sort of temperate zones, and so we got there right in the middle of rainy season, um, and we <laughs> ended up having to flee by bus um, because there were landslides because there was just there was so much rain. Um, but so I was I walked around Balaninga for just one day. <laughs> well, what did you um, did, did, did you gleam anything from that trip? I mean, I you know it's nice to be uh, you know not much competition I guess for the flight, but. Um, did you learn anything about that? Um, I mean, I, I've, I, I learned number one, Samar is beautiful. It's still beautiful today. I think it's, it's definitely one of those places that if you're really an, 
sort of an eco-tourist and you really like the outdoors adventures, it's I highly recommend it. It's just gorgeous. Um, but I also, when I was walking around the town, I got this great layout because it's my it's my second full novel that that has a character. He's a survivor of that attack. So he's an American soldier who um, was pretty unhappy in the army to begin with, finds himself in Balhaniga um, and starts to see the sort of the wheels come off the bus around him. But he's just a sergeant. He can't. He tries to get the captain to, to change what he's doing and he can't. He has, just has no control of the situation. And so then the attack happens. He and his friends, you know, were able to escape. But of course, um, from from my personal friendship with several combat veterans, I know that they never really escape, that the post-traumatic stress of that kind of situation haunts haunts them and it haunts my character Ben. So I wanted to I was I knew I was gonna have some flashback scenes that I wanted to write in terms of I wanted to narrate what happened in the town, how how it went wrong, um, and 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 how Ben could see it going wrong and and not change it. And so I needed to really walk where he walked. And so I if you can, I think for all writers out there, there's nothing better than just walking around and and seeing it for yourself, seeing the layout. I got to see how, you know, the coast, um, you know, Balaninga is right on on the bay. Um, uh, but then there's a river, the Balaninga River, that that comes up. And so the t- how the town lays out on this river, um, on the bay, and where the church is, and where the town square is, which they now have a monument that praises the attackers that, you know, that praises the townspeople. Um, and so I was able to sort of see that and about where the attack would have happened. Wow. Um, are there scenes um, like, cause I, I know, um, you know, there's like, a, there's, there's a few moments in Balahigo where like people are like throwing cans at uh, or cookware to try and escape. Like, is that part of um, your story as well? Yeah, I, I had to keep it, relatively short um, because I do have, you know, it is, it is historical romance. So there is only, (laughs) there's sort of a finite amount of (laughs) death and destruction uh, uh, a romance reader is, is, is ready for. Um, uh, You know, they're ready for some of it. It can get dark, but, but they don't want it to be too dark for too long. So I I kept it somewhat brief, but uh, yeah, I mean, there is, you know, I have my character basically walking down the road when he sees his friend, who is the sentry, um, be attacked by his other friend, who is the police chief. So, you know, it's based on a real person. Um, uh, I love digging into what you can find about, you know, real people and trying to use those as models. But Frank Batron was a was a real sergeant, um, and he trained in the Filipino martial arts with the police chief, um, Abanador. So so he was the only one. He was the only American that Abanador took um, uh, under his wing, um, and and they trained in what you might call it a screma or or arnis. Um, and and so my character Ben was that person, and so he considered this this police chief to be a friend, a, a, a mentor, uh, you know, much more so than his own American uh, commander, even. And and to see that man then attack his 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 corporal um, was sort of the sign that that his whole world was about to turn upside down. Gotcha. 
Wow. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> I I you say it's it's powerful stuff, and also I understand not having all of that in um, a romance novel for sure. Um, so yeah, so we've been we've talked about I feel like so many big things from from <laughs> from you know war specifics to um, like classroom teaching, but yeah, you know, kind of putting it all together. I always like to think at the end: is there anything that I didn't ask about or we didn't get to talk about, um, you know, whether that's uh, things you learned about the war in the time period or parallels. We didn't quite mention this, but, um, you know, talking about the concentration camps, I was also reminded of uh, Hamlet's, the Hamlet strategy in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, is there anything that like has really, really struck you about the time period um, and your research or your teaching that uh, we didn't talk about already? Oh, there's, I mean, it's, it's so rich, actually. There's so much. Um, a couple of the other themes that um, I found interesting enough to dig into, and I would say by no means are these the only interesting things going on in that history. Um, but as I said before, the Americans declared the war over in 1902. And and I would say that that was rather con- a convenient uh, decision by President Teddy Roosevelt. And it was partly because it was the only way to shut down the debate in the states. So there was there was all sorts of things going on from the debate over whether Americans were guilty of torture, which, I mean, I would say that n- certainly not every American soldier was, not even close, but the, the few that used what was known as the water cure uh, people like Major Edwin Glenn, the few who used it, used it a lot. Um, and so, you know, everybody was sort of up in arms about that. And so the way to end that discussion would just say, well, war's over. This is now sort of a a, a military issue um, for them to handle internally. It's not something that we Americans need to concern ourselves with. Same thing with um, the uh, uh the Americans had been re- basically licensing brothels and uh, doing medical inspections of prostitutes, um, which was basically consider it was just continuing the Spanish and Filipino system before them. But when Americans found out that not only was this vice happening, um, and and I think it was uh, Governor Taft who called it a military necessity, um, but classic classic William Taft. Yeah. But but not only was it happening, but the Americans were actually essentially running it. Like like you know how we give uh, bars will have an alcohol license, well a brothel will have a license for all of its um, the women working there. And and how do you Americans were you know particularly the the teetotaler movement right the the abstinence movement was very upset about this, um, and of course as we know they were on the rise because they were within you know twenty years of getting the. Um, uh, uh, amendment, uh, which I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but but uh, banning alcohol. Um, so prohibition was was just around the bend, and so you know you have all of this debate swirling in the United States, and they shut it down by just declaring the war over. Well, what I find really interesting is how much the war was in fact not over, um, and I feel like it's that mission accomplished banner on the Abraham Lincoln <laughs> behind. President George W. Bush, you know, it's, you know, mission accomplished is nowhere near accomplished. Um, It hadn't even begun in Iraq um, when he stood on that aircraft carrier. And so I feel like it's very much the same. Um, And particularly in some are 
when you have such a, a a brutal strategy of just burning the entire island to the ground nearly, you have inevitably a backlash. You know, you have the blowback that will come from that. And and that came in a movement of religious extremism. So you have essentially these Christian religious extremists who are in some ways similar to the boxers in China um, and in, in some ways different religion, but similar to, um, you know, the enemies we fight in Al-Qaeda and ISIS in that they were they believed that they were bringing a new beginning uh, by essentially, you know, getting rid of the foreigners and 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 sort of purifying their land. Um, and the Americans had to fight. They were called the Pulahans, uh, and the Americans had to fight the Pulahans um, really from 1904 to 1907. And it was a really difficult war. It was really difficult. Um, fortunately, the Americans actually, I think, dealt with it better than they had the first war. Um, and then when that's not even over, then you have the war, uh, which we call the Moro Wars, but the wars in the South against the Muslim Filipinos. Um, and those weren't really over till 1913. And it reminds me, um, something I was thinking about, um, I don't know if, if, if maybe you see the parallel or you'd agree to, I'm curious, but it reminds me, um, you know, kind of how Theodore Roosevelt was very adamant that, um, you know, nothing was his fault, first of all, but that um, the war was over in the Philippines, that um, he gave, you know, a crazy um, political speech on Memorial Day for Civil War veterans. But it reminded me, since you're talking about, um, you know, kind of religious extremism um, and papering over conflict, um, that I was thinking about Reagan, actually, and about the kind of idea of a Vietnam syndrome, how you know, we can't apologize for things that happened in the past and then getting involved in Afghanistan and the Middle East. And, you know, as conflicts keep building up, kind of um, not ignoring them completely, but uh, papering over, it just reminded me of um, like post-Vietnam Reaganism and kind of post-mission uh, accomplished Bush and Obama era. Um, do you see those kind of comparisons too? All the time. And I think especially in terms of um, not the American public not realizing exactly where the American military footprint is and what it's doing, you know, because in the Philippines after after 1902, um, I think the American public would have been surprised because they thought the and they didn't even call it the war then. They called it the insurrection, right? The insurrection, which is we can talk about how laden that word is, but the, the you know the insurrection was over. So I think most Americans wouldn't have realized that there were still American troops over there fighting. Um, and I think that is absolutely our situation now. Uh, you know, we'd it, it's possible given recent news that we're not even telling the president of the United States how many soldiers are where and and to what extent they can be withdrawn. I find I think it, it's more than possible. <laughs> I, it's 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 pretty amazing to me. Uh, you know, I've also spent a fair amount of time in Syria um, because I lived in Lebanon as well, and and so you know when you when you look at you know, the president trying to pull troops out of Syria and people essentially lying to him and saying, well, we can't or, or this, that, the other reason. Um, 
And I'm thinking to myself, you know, usually it has to do with with really, again, making the other, you know, we're othering these other, you know, Syria, Philippines, we're, we're othering the people, we're othering their leaders, we're othering them and saying, well, we have to be there because they're so terrible, right? We have to go and, and be there. And, you know, having traveled in Syria a fair amount, I, I mean, it's, it may not be a country that we like its politics of, but I don't know. Maybe we leave that out, but this may be too political. But it's just, it, it strikes me that um, we're just not telling people here what we're doing. And I think even the young men and women who fight and who sign up to fight don't necessarily know where they're going and why. And I think, you know, I wanted to capture that to a certain extent with my character, Ben Potter, because, I mean, he signed up to fight in Cuba, like a lot of Americans did in the Spanish-American War. And he ends up on a ship to the Philippines. And then he ends up on a ship up to China to fight the Boxer War and then back down to the Philippines and then to Samar. And this whole time he's wondering, you know, what did I sign up for and why you know, why am I where I am right now? Um, and and that's really just not a choice given. I mean, once you're in, you're in, right? And you you follow orders. But it it the people who are giving those orders, how much are I mean, ultimately if we're accountable for democracy and we're accountable to the people, how much are we asking the people, you know, is this what we really want to be doing? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funky. Um, it's more than funky, but it, it um, it's weird. As you were talking about that, I was thinking about um, as a long tangent. Someone recommended that I watch like a documentary um, about alien conspiracies, and they're like, "There's so much they're hiding from the president himself," and it's like sounds ridiculous, but it's like, uh, I mean, could <laughs> could could. Um, people in the military hide things from other people, elected officials. That's probably true. So, you know, um, how alien a concept um, is that for for the pun? Um, the last thing, actually, because you reminded me of that, um, that I was curious about, um, since I think you're a little bit familiar with um, David Fagan's story is, yes. you know, what do you what do you think about um, how someone like David Fagan fits into this, um, you know, how emblematic do you think his kind of story is about all the themes we're talking about? I, I mean, I really think it's an important story, particularly for this moment in history right now, because I think not only do you have the layer of, you know, American soldiers being in the Philippines, unsure maybe of of their mission, um, certainly at times under questionable leadership, I'm thinking there of General Smith. Um, but then you add this other level that this was at the height of uh, segregation, Jim Crow, um, you know, somebody like David Fagan, who who ends up in an army representing a country that is currently allowing, you know, Black Americans to be killed without any kind of criminal prosecution of their killers. When you have the um, uh, the case of uh, no, now I'm blanking on his name, but um, 
Sam Hose? Sam Hose, yeah. Who, what I, what's so fascinating about all of this, of course, is that uh, Apollinario Mabini, who was essentially the mastermind behind the Philippine Revolution, um, he knew exactly who Sam Hose was. Um, and that was, you know, that was part of the, the propaganda that was often left for Black American soldiers um, to remind them, not only do you have the, the murder of of Sam Hose, the lynching of Sam Hose, but then that the the place of his lynching becomes a tourist attraction, and and trains sell tickets to to go down and get your piece of Sam Hose memorabilia. Right, that's that's where the United States was in terms of its own mentality, and I think sort of the courage it takes for someone like David Fagan to still join that military. Um, you know, I've done some research on on Black American newspapers at the time and and reading what they say. And and they, you know, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place because on the one hand, uh, they don't want to have anything to do with the white man's colonial wars. On the other hand, they want to prove their loyalty as American citizens because they want to make sure that any rights that they have been given from the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments um, be protected. And so it's a really impossible dilemma. And and from all accounts, as you well know, I mean, I think David Fagan was treated pretty horribly by his white officers, which doesn't surprise me, some of which were were old Confederate officers. Um, and, you know, I he he clearly was a man with some ability because by by the accounts of both the Americans who fought him or were captured by him and from the Filipinos, he he seemed to lead some of them some very successful operations on behalf of the Philippine Revolutionary Army. And I'm gonna ask this um, like last little bit. Um, I'm possibly making a, a compilation um, for like maybe a trailer or something else in like a sentence or two. How would you describe David Fagan? David Fagan was, or he was, uh, you know, whatever word term you would use. Oh, in terms of like, he was what, a freedom fighter. He was oh. like uh, a symbol yeah. of, um, I don't know, of a larger um, forgotten conflict. Whatever, whatever term you want to use. Just well, I think the, yeah. the the question is, was he patriot or traitor? And. <laughs> I find it hard to say that the first country to put its uniform on his back did right by him. I think my my feeling is that he changed countries and and that makes him a defector. And and for the same reason that people defected in the 70s and 80s from the Soviet Union, I believe he was defecting from the United States and the United States Army. He had married a Filipina. He was making the Philippines his home. And I believe he he survived Funston's attempts to to murder him. I believe he may have been that that guy who survived World War II. Um, you know, the accounts of maybe a, a black veteran um, helping the guerrillas fight, whether that could have been Fagan or not, it may have very well been Fagan. So I would I would call him a defector. That's <laughs> I was like you asking more questions. Why? I just like, why do you think that? 
Or why do you why do you think he survived? I guess it's actually. The, the oh, why do I think this. he survived? Um, yeah. I think because if you look at the the requisition for the reward that was mm-hmm. offered on his head, um, it it never seemed to have been paid out. Um, uh, and and the one account that I wrote said the army has records of every single dollar that leaves it. Um, the other, I think, the other thing is that it. <laughs> It seems sort of too perfect to have this person show up with a head that is too small to be Fagan's. And, you know, it's sort of like this perfect, you know, I suppose conspiracy, but of, you know, the idea that that he could just say, oh, don't worry, he's dead. You can stop looking for him. I, it just, it, maybe it sounds like a good movie to me, but um, it, it, it sounds believable enough. Um, you know, no, no American was there, uh, and and honestly, there was no written record of the actual account of his death that I know of. No, I I agree. I totally agree. I um I'm glad <laughs> to share that kind of optimism uh, as well. But um, I really appreciate you taking all this time to talk and sure. talk about. Uh, your interests and a bit of my interests as well. Um, So thank you so much, Jen. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me.